0: You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Nikki Stott. This week on Earth Matters, we feature part two of a three-part show with Indigenous Action Network hosts Bearcat and Clee, in conversation with Seneca Six Nations organizer Amanda Lickers about land trauma and some of the ways in which the climate justice movement continues to perpetuate white supremacy, capitalism, and colonialism. This audio was sourced with thanks from Indigenous Action at IndigenousAction.org.
1: There is a lot of misinformation and stuff like that happening with the internet and the social media and everything. I don't know. You know, like at the end of the day, it could all be state generated AI bots. Like we don't know, you know, and like so what is a priority for in-person relationships? Who are people accountable to? How do we hold each other accountable? And you know, also like where are we putting in that work? And so for me, I'm really inspired by some of my colleagues at the Buckskin Babes and who are doing language revitalization. They're focusing on traditional farming, seed saving, animal hide processing. And just like, really when you gear it into that land-based relationship, everybody comes like the community, community comes to that. People are very hungry for that connection to the land. And I think that's why even some people find themselves on front lines because, you know, it's kind of like going out on the bush and it's, you have a sense of purpose and you have this kind of togetherness. And I think creating those environments for us to share and learn together that maybe aren't always based in a reactionary perspective, not to say that it, we have to react, we have to respond, we have to resist, but also to plan and to prepare for what we want to see.
2: And the ties between um, the ways that we are reflected in the land and the re- land relates to us as well there's a very strong connection there. So of course, like when things start getting, you know, so chaotic, it seems like the last thing you would want to do is go out on the front lines and get shot at or, you know, arrested or this or that. But it seems like a lot of our people are feeling pulled to those spaces. And I mm-hmm. feel like there's a relationality there and that's very real with us. But yeah, uh, there's a very strong tie there. It's interesting that you mentioned um, a lot of the work being done around um like sexual violence and uh, I guess authoritarian violence and um, how that relates also to state violence, because uh, one of the things, one of the tactics, I guess, I would see, and it and it is a, a touchy subject. So, but acknowledging that, uh, we'll go ahead and go into it because that's what we do. This whole idea that I've seen that the people that are you know a cab a cab are the first ones that will disbelieve a, a victim. You know, that when they come forward with the truth, with their truth and um, and say, hey, this is what's going on and I need help. They're the first ones that will turn around and be like, well, where's your proof? And it's like, that is a state-based authoritarian tactic. How is that going to work for us? How has that ever worked for us? And these are some of the things that I see in, in relationality with uh, land-based trauma. And these are things that we have control over to stop doing. And I feel like there is a lot of work that's being done around that. But, uh, I feel like there's so many people still on the fence about it and, you know, Oh, it's a, he said, she said, Oh, there's two sides to every story. Like, no, nah, there's really not. <laughs> there, there's, there's not. And, uh, when you said like, uh, we need to take a gentle approach, but also sometimes not a gentle, I feel what you're saying with that, because sometimes it's just like, no, sometimes we're being expected as femmes or as, you know, women that, we have to take a certain. We have to have a certain gentleness, a certain grace about it. But at the same time, like back in the day, that was not the case. Like <laughs> that was not the case at all. That was not our role, and that was not an expectation. That is a, a settler um, requirement, or a set, you know, something set by the state, and it's not there to serve us either. So these things are important to to talk about.
3: I just wanted to just real quick jump in and say that I don't think um, gender-based violence interpersonal violence apologism is unique to radical leftists, though. I think it happens across the board. Mm But the way that people get a pass for, you know, sticking a badge on for radical politics is sort of, you know, I think, what needs to be contended or a big part of what needs to be contended with as well. Absolutely. And I, I wanted to, like get a little bit more into and connect these points about something that you've written about. And I think you're noted for especially formulating and articulating early on um, what has become widely more widely known and adopted in land-based, you know, critiques and around land back is this idea of land back or I mean, land trauma and maybe you could break down a little bit about what you mean by that? I know you've written quite a bit and talked about that, but how is that understanding connected to missing and murdered indigenous women girls two spirit and trans struggles, and maybe sort of bringing that together because I, I think this important this or this topic about sexual violence and gender based violence is really a key component of this as well, especially when we're talking about on one level there's this sort of strategy of picking low-hanging fruit and protecting areas that aren't as critically involved in the overall infrastructure of the U.S. energy production. And then two, you know, pushing for more policing as a response to missing and murdered Indigenous women as, you know, a lot of Indigenous folks are celebrating the actions of the Biden administration to address this issue here in the US context. So, you know, on one hand, they're like, you know, opening up more oil and gas lease sales than the first, you know, few months of the Trump administration's or first year of Trump administration. I can't remember the exact statistic. I think Biden signed more oil and gas leases in his first year than Trump did for whatever that matters. Um, but yeah, so if, if the question again is um, can you talk about land trauma and how this understanding is connected to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, uh, two spirit, and trans?
1: Yeah, for sure, Clee. Yeah, I'm going to try to address all these things, um, too. When, um, what you were talking about, Bearcat, about that connection with the land and being reflected, um, in the land as well, like that made me think of something that Frida Hewson has said from, uh, the Wet'suwet'en Nation over at Unistot'en. And, uh, you know, she would always say, too, like, you know, of course, there's calls for supporters to show up there and, and, uh, go through the protocol if, if they're if they're given access but she would also say like you know your ancestors are waiting for you in your homelands and what you do to protect your territory helps us protect our territory you know and that also connects to i had the opportunity to go to so-called australia in like 2015 or 16 i think it was or 17 i don't know years anymore they all just bleed together and um you know some of the some of the you know uh, indigenous folks there they were talking about how our sacred fires are connected uh, across, across, across the world, you know? So when you are having a sacred fire, like it's connected to the other sacred fires that are happening at that same time. And so I think it's really important to put that time and energy into our own home fires and what does that look like? And what does that mean? And what are our, our ancestral territories and what are our responsibilities um, to our traditional territories and to you know like obviously yes there's an interconnection but also you can be just as effective sometimes staying home. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, and on the point of like, I definitely feel you, Klee, what you're saying. Uh, leftist spaces are not the only ones, but um, it's definitely a problem, a, a, hip, a like a hypocritical type of problem. And almost maybe because there's such a heightened politicization within some of these spaces that it becomes like this political thing they're like oh he said she said and people want to debate it or whatever kind of reaction they're having whereas in some of these maybe even normy spots like they might even handle it sometimes better i don't know but irregardless i think what it comes down to is politics being like a shorthand for values when really it's an aesthetic what's what's come to be now where we are is largely aesthetic and it's fashionable and it's um, you know, it's a Pokemon set basically. And it's, that's, that's the vibe that I'm noticing. And I think it's really connected to the rise of social media and the development and the normalcy of social media. And that idea of like, you know, rolling up to the blockade just to get your selfie and, you know, all these types of things. And like, even just the roles that white saviors insert themselves into our communities through anti-capitalist movements, through anarchist movements, and, you know, to be so in support of climate justice allegedly. And then they're coming in and doing all kinds of predatory stuff. And it's also too, it's not just, it's not just outsiders. It's also our own community. And that's when it becomes the hardest. And it's something that we're constantly dealing with, you know, and we had to do this at the high camp. Uh, we are notified that there was an abuser and I asked them to leave, but also like, it's always a small few who are going to ask them to leave, you know? And like, sometimes maybe there's dynamics where some people aren't safe to do it like they it will be unsafe you know and so just how do we also normalize identifying predatory behavior and sharing that information with one another and also how to de-escalate a situation and exit either bounce by force or like in a way that is as safe as possible for the survivors in the space and so how to do that and just sort of Building those skills, you know, that should be right along with any other frontline skill is how to, how to handle these types of situations. And also it gets complicated because sometimes you people have relationships and there might be people who are being outed as abusers who are close with the hosts and you're on their territory. Then what, you know, and, and I think this is the really difficult thing. And it's, it's hard to see people who you, who you thought would do better and, and hold a safer space, like fail to do that, you know, at times. But like, I think it's also like very difficult to assign individual responsibility when we have a collective responsibility. And so how do we actually enact that collective responsibility and hold each other and hold a space accountable? I think it's a lot of work that requires having a trauma-informed approach and actually what is survivor centrism look like and how do we also educate people on consent, you know, and how do we normalize and discuss and visibilize processes of consent? And that's what I really like with a lot of land-based practices is it's very much based in consent protocols with the territory and with the people around you. And like, things can get, you know, really like things can get hairy really quickly. You know, if if you get sustained an injury in the bush or, you know, if you, you, you can also, you're like, just things can go wrong. You know, you're at the whim of the natural world, right? So having that closeness and the ability to communicate with one another and all those types of, all those types of things. So I think it's like, how do we combat that idealization of what is, what do our decolonial spaces look like? But then also like, how do we identify predatory behavior and even, you know, recognize when it's happening around us. And I think it's really, it's really tricky and there's no like ABC set to get it done.
0: You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network.
1: So discussing land trauma, I would say like, I like, I guess like, you know, like, I guess I like coined this phrase, but it's also like, I would consider it a community term that came out of discussion and dialogue with peers, relatives, friends, and talking about, especially within, the, you know, as indigenous people who are focusing on land based work, you know, especially pr- trying to prevent extractive industry on our territory and just dealing with the repercussions of that and even like in conversation with indigenous peoples from north to south east to west right and like was talking about land trauma for the longest time it didn't really have a definition it was just something that other indigenous people automatically we would feel. You would be like, oh yeah, I know what you mean by that. And like the ways that our territories are being destroyed and how that makes us feel and this mental health impact. And like, not only that, but then the cultural and nationhood and sovereignty-based impacts of our sacred sites being under attack, you know, and what happens when even maybe certain ceremonies or uh, protocols maybe are being under threat because of threats onto the territory, onto those sacred sites. So- that's really what, you know, land trauma is about, is about that embodied, um, those embodied feelings as Indigenous peoples. I've seen, like, some rebranding or whatever from the settler side talking about climate anxiety, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. It was like, all right, maybe that's more accessible for people. Non-natives are, like, getting their climate anxiety. But for us, you know, we have that land-body connection. And I think when it comes to, like, you know, missing and murdered, um, uh, Erin Marie Cosmo, who's a two spirit, um, Métis artist with Native Youth Sexual Health Network formerly, they have this piece of art and it's like titled My Body is Not Terra Nullius. And, um, you know, even in the environmental violence toolkit, Vanessa Gray from Amjanong talks about that when our view of the land becomes so low, then the view of our women also becomes low. And it's that land body connection and it's also that gender, you know, connection too, where, the land is something that nurtures us and that gives us life. You know, um, we literally talk about the land as Mother Earth. This is our origin place. They provide for us everything that we need. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of modeling those nurturing relationships of like, you know, from our families. Right. And so... What it should be anyway. And so it's like that idea, you know, of terra nullius, whether it's on the land or that idea of terra nullius is being projected onto our bodies, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a means of degradation. And so I also think that, um, you know, when it comes to like intimate partner violence and gender based violence, Um, you know, as indigenous peoples, like who are experiencing land trauma, like that also means that we're going to have like, uh, we're going to have like a struggle with our mental health. We're going to have like, it's like, I think it's very difficult to have models for healthy relationships sometimes within our own communities. And it's very difficult to deal with that when people are, are like reenacting cycles of trauma and cycles of abuse and perpetuating that on one another. And I think it's really difficult to be able to just, you know, just break free from that and just like, okay, yeah, you know, I'm going to just enter this relationship with this person and like, whether they're queer or not, you know, um, intimate partner violence happens in queer community as well. And it's something that is, I think, it's a lot bigger than just like our own individual experiences, but it's also part of a culture, you know?
3: Mm-hmm. And this
1: is where I think like, you know, really looking at the links between rape culture and terra nullius can, can help us to understand how these systems are playing out in our relationships and on our bodies. Um, And I think also that, you know, with this idea of, you know, land trauma also comes the, the recognition that our territories are being exploited. And, you know, people have talked about this for so long and that relationship of exploitation, um, being based into the, the territory also means, um, that exploitation is going to be the point of relating to one another. And so that's going to increase, you know, rates of gender-based violence. And when it comes to policing agencies, and I was just like shocked when I heard you saying that like Indian country in the States is like celebrating more cops, you know, it's like for to, to deal with like missing and murdered. It's like, first of all, the cops are directly implicated. Half of them are involved and, like, also there's, like, human trafficking that's happening at the same time, you know, which is, like, separate then, separate from the sex worker industry, you know. So, it's, like, it, there's all these, like, layers. And at the end of the day, if people are vulnerable from our own communities and they don't feel safe to, like, speak up and talk about it, then we're doing something wrong. So, whether you agree with sex work or not, it doesn't really fucking matter because sex workers need to feel safe in our own communities, you know. But that doesn't mean we can't also talk about the impacts of human trafficking and we all know, like, man camps, like, I feel like, you know, this is stuff that we all know, you know, as there's increased um, activity for extraction on the territory, there's also increased, you know, gender based violence by indigenous, faced by indigenous women and trans folks and queer folks and two spirit folks, and also youth and children and minors, you know, and I think that just. Actually, naming these systems of violence um, and trying to visualize them, and actually understand what is consent and normalizing consent, like are really key starting points. But yeah, I don't know. So I feel like I hope that kind of got some of those pieces going there.
2: I think it might help if people understood that the first relationship with the state is is um, is abusive as fuck. <laughs> I mean, we're not asked if we want to be a part of it or not asked if we mm-hmm. want to join. No, they just assign us a number mm-hmm. and we're like, Oh, Hey, what's up? I'm here for the party. Mm-hmm. Like, and, um, so that and it's definitely reflected in every single part. And and so it, feel, it does feel weird to go opposite that, you know, when it's become so normalized.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just going to add that, like, I mean, we're caught between, at least in the U S context, between the defense production act and the violence against women act and they can't see, at least from an institutional perspective, the, the col- colonial social order can't see how they're contradictory to each other and ultimately will produce you know, and replicate that ongoing violence against our bodies.
2: Well, we've actually already seen them tactically using the MMIW Act with the uh, federal officers that are allowed to go into our territories now. With that act um, against land defenders and, you know, the Winnemuc Indian Colony, we believe that that's one of the ways that they have um, been able to come onto, you know, the land that they don't have jurisdiction over is that because they're actively investigating under that task force ability, I guess, exploiting that. And I, that's something I saw immediately like, oh, you, you're going to bring extra cops in and give them extra powers. Like, how is this going to, how, how? I don't know. I don't know mm-hmm. how anyone could have even thought that that was a good idea. But uh yeah, right.
1: no one really has to so. <laughs> That's really interesting too, because I think we don't talk about the history of the police too often. And actually their historical role and what really how they came about in the United States and in Canada. In Canada, it was like the Queen's like They were called the Northwestern Mounted Police and their job was literally to subjugate and subdue Indigenous peoples in order to protect the pilgrims as they made their way west um, and to help to clear the land. And then later when Canada was formed to enforce residential schools and the PASS system, all kinds of things like that through the Indian Act. The United States is white vigilante colonists, okay, in the 13 colonies – who actually started their own patrols, slave patrols, rangers, and scalp hunters. And that was the proto-police, okay? And so the origin story for the police is white vigilantes who are slave owners and, you know, settler colonists who are looking to police their newly- acquired stolen lands, you know, and that's where the practice of scalping put a bounty on our heads. It provided a financial incentive to create this culture of you know, violence against indigenous peoples, but also black folks as well were being targeted. So if you were a black person or a native person at this time, and you were seen somewhere you were not supposed to be, you could just be jumped by basically these rangers. And that's the the origins, you know? And it's even that like phrase of paddy wagon. We talk about that, you know, the paddy wagon, people get, you know, thrown into the paddy wagon. It comes from, the etymology comes from slave patrols, Because it went slave patrols, and then it was like patrollers and patroller rollers, and then it became eventually paddy rollers, and then that's where the term phrase paddy wagon came from. So between the Antebellum South and the 13 colonies, you know, like those developments, it was rangers and... Literally scalp hunters. So that was the proto police. And like, so no wonder when we think about those colonial origins as white vigilante violence, settler nationalist violence. It makes sense where they are today. And so, again, and it, of course, you know, the United States is never going to bring into an act, a bill. They're not going to pass legislation that's ever going to system, systemically bring justice to Indigenous peoples or Indigenous women, you know. And also a quick note to what I said before of like, you know, it doesn't matter if you agree with sex worker or not, but also – I think that it's also none of people's business and that there's no ethical work under capitalism. And that if people have the agency and they're, you know, like that's their damn choice, you know, and we shouldn't be stigmatizing people. And I'm, I'm really sad to see how much stigma is being passed around, you know, too. And I might be in a minority on this, but even with the red road too, like, I think like sobriety is extremely important, but at the end of the day, you know, if people are surviving, and they're still with us, then that's what matters the most. And even for sober folks who fall off the wagon, like the amount of stigma they face, you know, to then have to, you know, and also like just also too like certain lifestyles, it's a coping mechanism at times. And like, yes, like ceremony can offer that, but you might not always be in those spaces and the type of trauma people are dealing with. So anyway, all around saying like stigmas is deadly, but not a good way and yeah i would like to see that attitude shift as well you know especially in our more like radical indigenous spaces to you know allow people as long as they're not harming one another is like you know if you're if your sobriety or lack of sobriety isn't hurting me that's like a different story you have every right to say if someone's harming you you know to to create your own boundaries around that and to to limit that exposure but just on the day to day you know that stigma I'm not here for it, so yeah.
0: you've been listening to earth matters on the community radio network this week we heard part two of a three-part show with indigenous action network hosts bearcat and clee in conversation with seneca six nations organizer amanda lickers about land trauma and some of the ways in which the climate justice movement continues to perpetuate white supremacy capitalism and colonialism This audio was sourced with thanks from Indigenous Action at indigenousaction.org. And you should definitely check them out and support the excellent and radical projects that they do. And you can connect with and support Amanda Licker's untiring and amazing activism at Instagram at scrimpscrap, that's S-K-R-I-M-P-S-K-R-A-P, and paypal.com forward slash paypalme forward slash aliquors and you can find those links on our podcast page at 3cr.org.au forward slash Matters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Nam, And we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And, of course, you can also find us on your socials. That's all for today, but don't forget to tune in next week for more environmental justice stories.
1: Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favorite
0: podcast app.